I think we all have a hard time seeing our own work, right? Um, but a few teachers that I've taken courses with, uh, whether it's watercolor or drawing, have said something that makes a lot of sense, which is the more you do, the more your own voice will come through. So, you know, what you just said about um, not being the best, but being the only, well, if your own voice or your own style comes through, then that becomes the only because it's you. Welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. This episode is a second conversation with Shari Blaukoff. Just like the previous episode with Paul Heaston, the idea is that I speak with early guests of the show in order to A, catch up with them and B, have a deeper, better conversation than I did the last time. I've improved so much as a speaker and listener over the course of recording 30 plus episodes that I feel like some of the early episodes were a raw deal to both the early guests, some of whom are my friends, and many listeners, many of whom are fans of my earliest guests. So a second conversation is an act of reparations for the past, but also an act of moving forward with this new season of the podcast. Shari and I recorded this conversation in early November, just before she was to embark on a road trip down from Montreal to Florida. She graciously gave me an hour of her time the day before her trip began. We spoke about some ideas that I've developed over the course of speaking with many guests, and I asked her her opinion on them. It is always good to check if your thoughts on a subject resonate with others who are toiling in the same fields as you. I have a lot to learn from Shari, and as you will find in this episode, I take some great ideas from her with which to boldly move forward into 2022. These are ideas that I also discuss every week on my newsletter, and you will find relevant links to them in the show notes if you're interested. The format of this experience is thus. We begin with the recording of my first conversation with Shari, and after that we begin the second conversation, sort of a natural follow-up to the first. It will be a good thing for new listeners to hear the first time Shari and I recorded together, and I think old listeners will also enjoy this chance to be refreshed. So, let's begin with the first conversation in August 2020. Good morning, Shari, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. Good morning, Nishant. I'm very happy to have you here. You are an artist that I've followed for very long on social media and I've admired your work for a really long time. Thank you. It's it's an honor to be here and talk to you. It was it was nice it was nice when we met in Chicago. That was the first time we met and we drew together. So, it's nice to continue the conversation here. I agree. Shari, like a lot of people that I come to know through online sources, like in your, in your, our case, I came to know your work first through Instagram. My understanding of you as an artist is very patchy and it's based on whatever I might have read at some point and whatever I might have seen on a story at some point. So I know you as an artist, I know you as an educator, but could you tell me, like maybe trace the arc of how you came to be where you are today and 
how art has played a role in your life? Sure. Um, art has always been in my life. I was one of those kids who was always drawing. And, um, you know, I, I got the art prize in high school. Isn't that exciting? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I was always the one who was drawing and took all the art classes and helped everybody like in the yearbook, you know, the high school yearbook. Uh, so it goes way back, my history with my love of drawing. I always had colored pencils and I would spend hours in my room drawing things with colored pencils. And um, when I was in my teens, I don't know how, but my parents thought I might enjoy watercolor classes. So when I was about 12, I went to study with a man who taught in, in Montreal who lived not too far and he had he was a man from Germany and he taught watercolor. So he had a little studio in his basement. And that's where my love of watercolor started when I was really young, like in my teens. So when you were painting as a young person, what were the kind of subjects that were interesting to you? Uh, well, you know, I guess probably I, I'm thinking back in his basement. Uh, it wasn't so much what was interesting to me, but it was more what what was always in front of us. So we always had a still life or flowers or something like that, maybe the occasional model. Um, but to me, it was never so much the subject. It was always uh, the actual watercolor paint that I found fascinating. You know, it wasn't so much what we were painting, but how it moved around on the paper that I always found fascinating. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I continued painting and, and then I eventually uh, went into, you know, I went to university and I studied graphic design, but even taking all those graphic design courses, my complementary courses were always painting and drawing and, you know, doing things that were related to graphic design, but not, uh, you know, not uh, career oriented, in other words. And, you know, at the time the I studied at Concordia University and the instructors were, there were a lot of abstract painters, but for me, even back then, um, I guess what always interested me was looking at things and drawing them. So drawing from observation, I would say interested me from way back when, even when the trend at school was something very different, it wasn't, um, necessarily, uh, observational i imagine a graphic design course is not primarily to do with drawing from observation in any sense so how what what That's kind of right. things did you study that were a little different from what you do today uh well i studied you know graph basic graphic design back then and back then it was before computers uh it was um typography uh page layout Illustration, I did do a lot of illustration because, you know, that tied into what I did. Um, but one thing that the, the main thing that connected painting for me and graphic design was the principles and elements of design. In graphic design, we learned balance and rhythm and harmony and um, repetition and those were all really really important so understanding how to divide up a page layout how to make a page layout into columns and use grids and understand all of that came into play eventually because eventually i um 
I studied with a man in watercolor uh, whose name is Ed Whitney. And he's, he was in his 80s or 90s when I studied with him. You know, he died a long time ago. Um, but he has a very famous book. Um, and uh, it's, I have it right here. It's called The Complete Guide to Watercolor Painting. And uh, podcast listeners can't see it, but uh, <laughs> uh, I keep it near me all the time. And I, I, look, I look at it all the time. So what Ed taught was not so much how to put paint on the paper, but he taught composition and design within your painting. So there was the marriage of my career and my hobby through, through understanding composition. I feel like a lot of artists I see in the urban sketching community, for example, they, or even some who are really good at the technical skill of drawing, you sometimes feel that their work is just missing that compositional touch. And like you explained with grids, uh, how, how to put elements that matter in certain places and how to balance that, that page with other elements. And I think that's such an important skill, which a lot of us intuitively come to in some ways, or at least that's the process we have to put ourselves through to understand how to, what makes that same drawing look better if you just change the point of view a little bit. Yes, exactly. And I think for me, it's kind of intuitive now because, you know, over all the years of uh, working as a graphic designer, my main focus was usually um, working on magazine layouts. That, that's what I really loved. So magazine layouts are always, you know, working with contrast with a big photo and then a big letter of typography and then small letters. And so all that balance and contrast and creating a focus on the page is the same thing as creating a focus in your sketch. I worked a lot with that over the years. And um, so I always go back to, as you see, that Ed Whitney book is sitting on my on my desk and I look at it all the time. And I still even look at my notes from the time when I studied painting with him. So so watercolors have been like a part of your life for forever. Like that's forever. that's been your chosen medium right from the start. Right from the start. And uh, I painted a lot. Um, until, and I had, I had exhibits and I, I, you know, I would go on painting retreats until I had kids and then, and then everything kind of stopped. And I, I was continued working as a graphic designer, but I stopped most, most painting and drawing for about 20 years while my kids were growing up. And, um, uh, then when I went back and I stopped I didn't stop working as a graphic designer, but I got into teaching graphic design. That's when I picked up sketching again. I was talking with Paul just last night, and we were talking about how the act of teaching and the act of kind of enumerating the, the thoughts you have and the things you almost take for granted because they're just your own mental processes. But when you're explaining it to someone, you put yourself through a more rigorous understanding of it, and you gain a lot of insight into things that you took for granted. What do you feel like you have gained from teaching now? Well, uh, I have to take one step back before I answer, because I, I think that um, what really helped me be a better sketching teacher was doing my blog, writing my blog. And um, my blog just I, just, I I never check how many posts I did, but I was just checking out of curiosity. And I just reached uh, a, a 2,000 posts milestone. 
And uh, I started it in 2011. And when I started it in 2011, and that was when I went back to sketching and I just started posting sketches. And um, not long after that, when I met Mark Tarot Holmes, who lives in Montreal as well, and we went out sketching for the very first time um, to the Red Path Museum and we sketched the dinosaurs, he explained to me um, sort of the mission of urban sketchers and the idea that the writing is just as important as, as the, as the drawing. And up until that point, I hadn't really been writing about my work. So I didn't know what I wanted to write about, but when I did start writing, I started uh, accompanying my sketches with some text about the process. So writing about the process um, and it kind of evolved into a more educational blog when I had the time, that really helped me as a teacher because I was, I would be sitting in my car because I sketched a lot on my way to school or on my way back from school. And because I live in Montreal and it's cold in the winter. So I sketch a lot in the car and I would be thinking at the same time as I'm sketching, what do I want to write about today? Because when I first started my blog, I, I posted every day for about three years. So I, I did about a thousand sketches. So I would constantly be thinking about, okay, what am I going to write about? Like what is important? What are the decisions that I'm making as I'm looking at this scene? Am I making decisions about composition? Am I making decisions about color um, or mood? What do I want to say about the day? And that became very important. Like if there's, if it was a windy day, I, I wanted always to bring it back to uh, the present. Like to me, it's not interesting so much to talk about something I did a long time ago. It's more interesting. What was I thinking about when I did this? So the writing really helped me. And um, it also, you know, I like teaching because I like people. So when I started teaching around the, around the same time, or maybe about a year before that, I started teaching graphic design to college kids. Um, I think what I liked about the teaching too was the connection to people and um, getting across an idea and then seeing how that sinks in and, and, uh, and also the back and forth of learning from them and then learning from me. So I guess all of that comes into play. But I, I, but I would say really my blog helped me most in the thinking about the process. I really like what you said there because I feel that this, even this process, like blogging is a way of, even before you speak to an audience, you're, you're kind of speaking to yourself and you're articulating a lot of things. And that process of articulation, it helps us to break down our challenges and to, like you say, to, to think about what is it that I'm doing today that's new to me? What is the interesting challenge of this sketch? And just thinking like that is a feels like a very nice way to improve in small steps every day and even keeps it fresh and engaging. Exactly, exactly. That and that and that still to this day uh relates to watercolor because I think with watercolor you you're always learning. Like there's always something to learn because it's you know, it's never predictable, right? It's always a little chaotic water because the balance of pigment and water and how things dry and what's wet when you touch it. And so I'm still learning after all these years, every time I paint and, uh, you know, and the same thing with sketching and every time I draw, there's always something to be learned. So I, you know, I go out and I look at wherever I am or my neighborhood and 
you know, what do I want to do differently today that I didn't do yesterday? Like I'll look for a, something difficult to draw to push myself. And and I guess it's really nice to hear that even somebody who's been drawing every day or even if nearly every day for so many years can still find some small way to push themselves every day and find something new and something engaging. Like a lot of people would look at your work and say that you've reached so far ahead. What have you got to improve? And, you know, you get a lot of uh, co compliments like that. But from the point of view of the artist, there is always another horizon and there's always so much further to go again. Oh, yeah. And you're in your own head. It's never like that. It's like you're only really thinking about your last failure. Like, how could I have done that so badly? <laughs> you don't think about like success. T tell me, Shari, how did urban sketching come into your life? And what kind of uh, what kind of experience was it getting into this? Well, I, I didn't really know what urban sketching was when I went back to sketching in 2011. But I think um, that I bought a book. Uh, it, I think it was a Danny Gregory book, an illustrated journey where it's different sketchbook artists and, uh, and their work. And the sketches in there that sort of portrayed the everyday were really fascinating to me. You know, it didn't, they weren't pretty pictures necessarily, but they were people chronicling their everyday lives. And it was really interesting to me because at that point, my kids were finally a little older and I had a little more free time and I was able to say, okay, I have to bring drawing back into my life. But I had a very busy life because I was teaching uh, graphic design and I still had a freelance business in graphic design as well. So how could I bring drawing back into my life in a meaningful way, but that wasn't very time consuming. So I wanted to just, um, just start keeping a sketchbook, even a very tiny three inch by five inch sketchbook that I could carry with me and just do a five or 10 minute drawing every day. So that's how it evolved. I, I, I started looking online, like who else does sketching, you know, and then I found Urban Sketchers. And then it was just an absolute revelation when I found Urban Sketchers blog. And there were these hundred people who posted about their daily lives and their, the world around them. And um, I, just, I just found it so, so thrilling, first of all, because there was the international component of, you know, seeing people's work from around the world. And so I said, this is something I just, I was so excited. I have to be part of this. So that's when I started uh, thinking, well, maybe I could go to a symposium. And the first one that I went to in 2012 in Santo Domingo was the first time I participated in a symposium. So, um, you know, that idea that it, I could just uh, do a sketch uh, and it, I, I could do it anywhere. And it, it didn't have to be like, oh, I take out all my paints and I set up a big thing. And it was something very portable. Um, and that, uh, and that connection with everyday life was something very attractive to me. That's that's quite interesting. I find a lot of people who have a background in any kind of fine arts or any kind of training in art itself, something they enjoy about urban sketching is the spontaneity that it affords, that it allows them. And the idea that you can you can do something uh, quickly and in in a very uh, in a sense, leave it unfinished, quote unquote. And that's like, it, it just relieves so much pressure. And even, even now, when you think of asking people to, uh, to draw or to paint something, uh, 
I think for a lot of people, the biggest obstacle is always the idea of how to, how would I finish it? How would I make it look like what I think a painting or a drawing should look yeah. like at the end? Right. The idea that it's a sketch is an interesting one because sometimes people say to me, well, is that a sketch or is that a painting? You know, because now my sketches are bigger, right? And so, um, you know, so what, what is the difference between a sketch and a painting? A big sketch is, a, is really a painting. I don't know. For me, a painting is, is on a separate sheet of paper and it's maybe bigger and a sketch is in a book and it might be smaller, but there's a lot of overlap between those things. The tactile experience is very important. The idea of holding paper, touching paper, holding a pen in your hand that many people got away from when computers started. So I, I started my graphic design experience uh, sketching out layouts. It was a tactile experience. And then we moved into computers and then it became a digital experience and the tactile was completely removed. So I noticed when I went back to urban sketching that there were many people in similar fields who might have been around my age who wanted to get back to the tactile. Architects, landscape architects, graphic designers, illustrators, who all had moved to CAD, to Illustrator, to the digital, and then realized, well, I really miss that tactile experience and I want to get back to sketching because we had all started drawing. And I noticed with my students, college age students, 17 year olds, never experience the tactile. Like they don't even come to class with a pen and, uh, or a notebook. So I got them sketching, which is what brought me back to sketching. Like I was teaching them how to do illustration, teaching them Adobe Illustrator, and they never sketched out ideas. I completely feel what you're saying because uh, so I'm kind of in the middle, I think, because I, when I was growing up and I was an early teen, that's when uh, digital desk, what we what we would call DTP, desktop publishing, that became a thing. And then suddenly there was Photoshop and all these tools. And actually, for me, it happened in exactly this way, too. Like I when I started drawing and I was a very young kid, of course, like all kids, I was using color pencils and pastels and watercolors and things. But once I, uh, and this happens to so many people, once I stopped, because I grew to a certain age and you stop drawing and you stop painting and you do other things, I couldn't find myself back going back into it because of these notions of how you're supposed, your art is supposed to look. And at that time, I was exposed to digital art and drawing with a tablet on connected to a laptop. And that for me was a very liberating thing at that moment. It allowed me to make mistakes and correct my mistakes. It allowed me to make a lot of things very quickly and not have to show anybody or feel like I quote unquote ruined a page. Just the idea that it's virtual. But then I reached this point where I felt exactly what you're saying, that I need to feel like what my, the brushes that I use, I want to know what they actually feel like because... Yeah. I'm sort of using them with the same mouse or the same uh, stylus and they all feel the same. So I don't yeah, quite understand the dynamics of this brush. Yeah, you went the opposite way. Exactly right. So I was doing the pencil tool or the pen tool and the Fude pen tool and all of them feel the same because I'm. it's the same stylus touching the same tablet. So 
I'm, I felt like I wasn't able to really understand the dynamics that this brush is supposed to give me. And I, maybe I need to travel back in time and now actually use the real thing. And that's when I kind of came across urban sketching and urban sketchers and people who do this. And just this exchange between traditional and digital media, I feel like each one informed the other and helped me with specific obstacles in the other. When I would get stuck on digital work, I would find inspiration in traditional media that would help me overcome that and the other way around. So I kind of see where your students are coming from, but I also really appreciate the value that you offer them in making them use traditional media a little bit. Yeah, they, they ended up really liking it. And, you know, I would say in a class of 20, there would always be one who would continue sketching. And I can, you know, I sort of consider that a success. Okay, I converted one. <laughs> yeah, good. That's a, that's a good way to look at it. So uh, tell me something, Shari. Uh, I want to know, like, when you, when you work with watercolors um, and you're looking at a scene and then there are urban sketches, like, suppose if I was sitting right next to you and drawing the same scene, I would approach it with a fountain pen or a fine liner. So there's this basic difference in how we are both looking at the scene that we're looking at and then bringing it out on the paper. What do you think, you know, having used a lot of these media yourself, can you tell me what is the basic difference that a watercolorist brings when they, you know, when they go into an empty page versus somebody who's doing line work? Well, I, you know, I, I think um, I can only speak for my own experience as a watercolorist and Again, it goes back to my training in, you know, with Ed Whitney and des page design and whatever, is that when I look at a scene, I see shapes. I don't see lines and lines only come after. So I'm always most comfortable. I mean, if I could probably paint the same scene with torn paper just by ripping up paper and putting sh and putting like gluing down little bits of paper because I see the scene in shapes. And I had a really interesting discussion with um, uh, Gail Wong from Urban Sketchers when we were looking at a scene together. I forget, I was sketching with her in Barcelona or Singapore at a symposium. And she is an architect, so she looks at volumes. So she looks out and she sees volumes. And I look out and I see flat shapes. So to me, a building against a sky is a flat shape, maybe with two sides against another flat shape. Um, whereas she's looking at the thing as a whole, you know, that building as a whole, as a volume in space. And I flatten things. So um, even, you know, even when I'm drawing and I could choose between a brush pen and uh, a line pen, like a like a, a you know a, a, a Lamy Safari or whatever, I will choose the brush pen because I can get to the shape faster. I can like put the brush on its side and make a shape. So, so that you know I I do draw with pen or pencil or whatever, but I'm still most comfortable with a brush in my hand because I I, I don't know I think it's just the way I see the world after all these years of painting. I see it as as flat shapes. I don't know if that's weird. I don't know how other people think. I mean, no, but... I, I, I think it's exceedingly common because uh, I think that I have to do the same thing. You like when I'm drawing and I'm doing all line work and I'm trying to 
to break down the challenge of drawing these complex shapes like people's faces and the way their hair is falling on their shoulders and i have to stop seeing it as what i recognize it as and just see it as a shape and just see it as lines that you know lines that go in different ways and they constitute these funny interesting shapes so if you like when you were in you were in my workshop and i i tell in my workshop that i i ask people to draw really long lines and draw really complex shapes at once because i i want to get into this zone of breaking down what we see and not really putting our perception of what it is right like i feel like a, a very important part of how we draw is to not draw what we think something is but to really draw it as it appears before us so important so important that that looking because often uh you know when when i'm teaching i tell people if they're they want to see lights and darks to squint and when you squint uh shapes merge so objects merge with with an object will merge with its shadow or a person will merge with a building and so i try to get them to find those shapes that are related in value but not in form necessarily not in you know single forms yeah so if you're looking at things at shapes i feel another thing that you're doing when you're working as a watercolorist is you're also breaking a scene down into its colors and True. i feel like an important thing that you pick when you would if you would pick a scene and you know you walk around a garden to look for the kind of view that you want to draw and the thing that might appeal and i'm thinking of this as the way that i kind of like to design some i do most of my color work digitally so then when i look at a digital piece that i like to draw the colors almost have to balance and contrast the right ways complement the right ways and i feel like uh, working with watercolors is a great way to kind of dive into that to see what colors work well next to each other and which ones end up diluting the the effect that you're trying to create when if they don't create that contrast so for people who don't my question is if for people who don't quite understand things like color theory or don't formally understand which colors work with each other what's like a good urban sketchers hack to like to get to quickly imbibe the basics of color theory so the the, the first workshop that i ever taught was in barcelona and it was called triad symphony and it was about using just a triad of primary colors so to me the easiest way to understand color and in fact i did a thing in chicago too that was similar to that um is to just use three colors so i suggest just using uh, a yellow a red and a blue and working with those three same pigments like just pick you know a cool yellow a cool red and a blue um and work with those for a very long time till you truly understand what they do and how they mix together and if you pick you know the pigments that i suggest are maybe like a um you know like a hansa yellow light and an alizarin crimson and an ultramarine blue because you can get bright orange with that and bright purple and bright green and you can because the alizarin and the ultramarine are quite dark you can also get interesting darks and if you mix all three together you can get neutrals so you pick three colors that you have on your palette instead of using the 12 most people have about 12 colors instead just limit yourself and really really understand them then 
when you add one more color to those, then you'll start to, you know, it's sort of a scientific process, right? You, you have your, your, the ones you understand, and then you add one more, then you'll see how that changes it. So I took a workshop a couple of years ago from an oil painter, and she told me that she worked for six years with three oil pigments plus white. And then she really understood color. So I thought, well, six years is a bit long to tell people, but... It, it reminds me of this uh, documentary I saw. It's called uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Have you seen it by any chance? No. Is it something I would that highly I recommend watch? watching it. It's like food porn. Oh. It's about a, a three Michelin star rated sushi chef in Japan. And he, he's working out of a 10 seat restaurant in a, in a subway station in Japan. And he's got three Michelin stars. And because of the process of rigor that he puts himself through to make the perfect sushi. And he's got acolytes who train under him for years. And one of them worked for him for 10 years only on rice before he was allowed to touch the fish. That's great. Exactly. So that is exactly what I mean. You work with the rice for 10 years and then you can add a little tiny bit of fish. And no, that's, that really is how you understand. Also, I think really important is understanding lights and darks and values. So the other thing that I suggest to people is to uh, work often in monochrome, like take Payne's Gray and or diluted or diluted india ink and really try and understand lights and darks and if i would say like the one most important thing is our understanding um like dominant color like making one thing more like like if you if for example if you're drawing a scene and there's a little blue a little green a little red, a little yellow, like a patchwork, it's not as interesting as if there's a lot of blue and a little spot of orange. That's more exciting, right? So those are the kind of things I think of when I'm thinking of color in a scene. What color is going to be the dominant color? And is there a little bit of the complement that will enhance it, will make it stand out? Shari, when people are trying to learn color or they're trying to, even if they're trying to learn to draw in any way, you, you'll find so many more people are inclined to learning from photo references, from photos they download off Google or something that they've seen on TV versus drawing from observation. What, what is a good reason to prefer drawing from observation? Well, I think drawing from observation is always more dynamic because um you know you you might be looking at a scene that has movement in it um it's not fixed in time so uh you know you're moving the scene is moving and it just becomes a more exciting drawing for me i think um also um you know uh when you let's go back to working from photos um taking a photo using a camera and and let's just preface this by saying that if you work from a photo it should always be your own photo not somebody else's because uh, i think that you've already made decisions when you've put the the camera up or you've put your phone up you've already made some decisions so those should be your own decisions and not somebody else's and not even 
going into copyright issues. So, but, but even the camera view should be your own view. But I, but um, you know, a camera, especially a phone camera, has a lot of distortion in it. So that I don't. And uh, but for me, the exciting thing is taking the three D, the the world around you. Um, and putting it on a sheet of paper. So when it's already two-dimensional in a photo, there's no excitement at all for me. But I think there's also a lot of learning in seeing. So if you're looking at something in front of you and you're trying to see it and you're looking at, you're measuring with your eyes, um, that to me involves a lot more learning process than looking at something that's already in a rectangle and figuring out where the vanishing points come out of that rectangle, you know, how they, how they are on the edge of the page. Like there's no learning for me in that it's already done. Whereas if you're looking at a scene and it's, you know, it's, a, I mean, with our peripheral vision, it's, you know, it's not 180 degrees, but I mean, it's a very wide angle. So what are you taking from that scene and putting on your paper? That's a lot more interesting to me. Yeah, that's a really good point because I think people uh, in pursuit of doing, like it, it can be argued that it's simpler to just draw from a photo, but what you lose in the process of going for that simplicity is some like uh, what you just said is something I didn't really explicitly think of that, that creative decision of convert, of looking at something and then seeing what part of it is important to you rather than letting a previously taken photograph whether it's yours or someone else's decide already for you what is important even like i feel like you you'd be more inclined to uh forego the act of composing the image yourself if you have a photograph exactly. you'd be more inclined to draw the exact photograph the way it is rather than something from it yes and and uh someone sent me a question um recently about um uh, I was asking because I have I have online classes now on my own teaching site, and somebody asked me a question. I I, I had actually said, "What do you want to learn?" I sent out a survey, and I said, "What do people want to learn?" You can send me ideas if there's something specific. And somebody said to me, um, "Could you could you paint from a photo? Like when I paint from a photo, it's always so boring." That was the question. How do you make it exciting when you're painting from a photo? Um, and I thought that was kind of an interesting thing because I, I think, you know, a photo for me is basically very flat and unexciting and you almost have to take the photo, uh, and make a sketch from it and find something interesting in there and then paint from that sketch where you've already interpreted it and then make a painting from that. If you understand what I mean, because Looking at the photo, you know, it's just, I don't know, it, it's just, it's, I find it so uninspiring. I mean, I, I do paint from photos sometimes. I, you know, it's, I have, the winter is long in Montreal and I don't, can't always get out. Um, so I've taught myself out of necessity to paint from photos. Also because when I'm giving online classes, I can't always record them outside. So I have to paint from some kind of photo reference sometimes. I feel like there is, I mean, there's value in any kind of practice that you put yourself through, as long as we're aware of what we, what the trade-off is. So if you're working from photos, the trade-off that you lose in composition exists, and yeah. the trade-off that the uh, the this complicated scene with 
a dynamic natural activity like even the wind or the sun changing position all of that is uh, taken care of for you so there's this tr- being aware of that trade off there is still a lot to learn so like for something something that i did initially i still do that very often as an exercise to teach myself composition in fact is i freeze frame scenes from movies or tv shows that i'm really enjoying and some of them are really good on cinematography so i freeze frame i take a picture and then i draw that scene as a way to reverse engineer my education in what makes a good scene so if something about this scene appeal to me and i can't put my finger on it i find that drawing that scene out will usually help me understand what about it i liked yeah i think that's a great way to do it and and or also to i think to to take um a photo that you might have something interesting in it and you want to do a painting from it but but try and make it better by trying it different ways using different compositions cropping it different ways simplifying it taking things out um uh you know even taking a photo and converting it to black and white and then using just the black and white values to do a different interpretation of color like paint it in different colors that's a good exercise too um so there's lots of things that you can you know you can make photos work for you as well which i think you know there's always there's always ways to learn what are some of the other interesting questions you've received from your students i find it very interesting the way people are able to interact with your work and then when they take your your workshops and they they look at the videos of you go taking them through the process of drawing i find that just looking at people do these things it raises a lot of questions in me so i was really glad to hear that you ask your students for feedback after the course is done because usually when i take any kind of lessons from somebody i have way more questions afterwards than before well i haven't i i only just did the survey so i haven't done that many courses yet in response to that but um a lot of people on location want to learn how to simplify a scene like they just they're in a city and they're they're looking at an urban scene and they just don't know what to keep in and take out and what enhances the composition and what doesn't and um so that's something i want to tackle i'm not sure how yet i mean i try to uh when i'm even when i'm looking at a photo but that's something that i want to tackle in a bigger way um and um i guess you know i guess in watercolor the biggest thing for people is not so much what but how like how to keep the color clean and so i try in my courses um in and especially when i record them in studio i try and do a lot of close ups on the palette and on the brush on the paper so that i can show exactly uh the ratio of water to pigment that is such an important part because i often feel when i look at your work and i look at the work of some other urban sketchers who do so much watercolor work it feels like as if you've just invented colors that don't exist on my palette and <laughs> i think it's just you know those 10000 hours of moving paint around successfully and unsuccessfully and somebody i forget who one watercolorist that i was reading said um you know one in four watercolors that he does is good and i would say that's about a success rate that i would say you know 
75% end up in a drawer or the trash. Um, or I turn them over and I use it for practice. So um, you just have to keep doing it again and again and again until you get that ratio of water to pigment and you understand the feel. And it's really like a feel like it's almost like if you use a brush often enough, you understand the weight of the brush with the right amount of water and the weight of the brush with too much water. Like you just understand it in your hand. And then you look at your palette and you know how much, if you've put too much water in the, in that wash, but it's because you've done the 10,000 hours. You know, Shari, some people are going to listen to you say that 75% of your sketches go in the drawer and they're never, they never see, they're never shown to the public and it'll be discouraging to them. So <laughs> can you say one good reason why or how people can start to enjoy these failures, so to say? Um, well, I think every failure is a learning experience and every failure also has something that is pretty positive in it right so you, you might in every painting that you do or every sketch that you do have one little area where you thought hey that worked right there that little spot that worked so when i mean failure when i say failure it means i wouldn't exhibit them let's say i wouldn't sell them um it doesn't mean that they're failures necessarily they're they're learning experiences but i wouldn't put them in a frame um, I mean, some are real failures and I would tear them up. Uh, some are just like, they're not my favorites. Um, and, you know, but you, I, I would say that I, I've learned something from every, every time I have a brush in my hand. And I guess it's very important to be uh, objective and critical about your own work, to be able to even understand which part is failing and which part you know in a picture that you might not like that you've made to be able to find which part worked it requires some amount of deconstruction of your work yes and here's something else that's really interesting that i've found because i put them in a drawer in a filing cabinet is that sometimes i pull them out a couple of months later and i think that wasn't so bad why did i hate that thing <laughs> And then I, or I look at it and I think, you know what, it was just missing some darks. And then I go back. In fact, I, I think on my blog, I have an example of that, of like a painting that I, I painted on location. And then I came home and I thought, oh, that's a wishy-washy, really not so nice thing. And then I pulled it out of the drawer a couple of months later and I thought it was just missing darks and I added darks. So I scanned it before and I scanned it after just as an, as a teaching example of sometimes you're just afraid. And I think, I think in watercolor, because people uh, think it has water in the name, that it needs to have a lot of water in it. But, and so people often don't get dark enough in areas of their work. So sometimes you just need to punch it up with a little dark and then it's a lot more successful. It's this habit of looking back at our work and trying to, uh, trying to break it down into the elements you know, things that work, things that didn't work, things we tried, things that we wanted to try but ended up not going for. That, that feels like a really crucial part of, like, I think that peop, uh, not enough people deconstruct their their work and and look at it almost dispassionately. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think it, it also takes a certain amount of courage to 
uh, post your work for, I mean, uh, this is not just for me, I be, uh, but I mean, for all of us to post our work in public places, to put it on Facebook groups or on Instagram. Um, and I think, you know, Urban Sketchers as a whole is a very, very encouraging group. So people feel welcome to post um, and not feel like they're putting it up there and asking and asking for, um, for a criticism necessarily or feedback. So, I, you know, I have to say that, that that is one thing that's helped me a lot. But I think that um, on our own, we are our own worst critics often of our own work. Um, I'm certainly guilty of that. And, uh, um, and so, but I, but I also think that's how you push yourself. You know, if you're always trying to improve, to be better at drawing or to be better at painting, um, that's kind of why you do it. Otherwise, if you felt like you were perfect and your work was great, then you probably wouldn't do anything tomorrow. Right. But, um, exactly right yeah that's really the beauty of this urban sketching community like it just how that and i was talking about the same thing with paul as well that i feel that there are no entry barriers to being an urban sketcher you don't have to be a, a certain level of artist you don't have to have a certain amount of proficiency with whatever tools you're using it's uh, the act of urban sketching makes you an urban sketcher not the result of your sketches Yes, and that was what was so, so exciting when I went to the first symposium in Santo Domingo that year, because prior to that, I had only taken uh, watercolor workshops with small groups, where the teacher is uh, the, the maestro and um, knows everything, and the students are there uh, to watch and listen, but, you know, and ask questions, but uh, th there's really only one teacher in that group. And when I got to Urban Sketchers and everybody was a teacher and everybody was a student um, at the same time, like instructors take workshops and instructors teach, and you could be sitting next to somebody who's a fantastic sketcher and also a participant, and they will teach you as much as the instructor. So um, that was what was so fantastic. It was that community spirit of, um, of learning and teaching uh, for everybody, um, that there wasn't a single teacher. Uh, that, was, that was what I was an absolute revelation. I mean, I, I probably didn't sleep that week because it was just so stimulating, so exciting to, uh, to have so much input and so much to think about and so many different styles and it just like exploded my head of like wow the way all these people work is in so many different directions and so many thought processes and everybody had a different learning background and was completely open to sharing everything that they knew that uh i just i just was like oh this is this is so unique so very unique it's this feeling of wonder that I think all urban sketchers share when they meet one another, that there is somebody else who is obsessed about this same thing as me. Because I think all of us in our family lives, in our regular friend circles, we are the odd ones out, the people who have little sketchbooks in their pockets and yes. are drawing things. And then I remember the first urban sketchers meetup that I attended, it felt like I had suddenly found my tribe. Yeah. We were sitting in a cafe and this was with the, I think one of the earliest times for me was with a group in Minneapolis. So Amber Sousen was there and Pam was there. And what was 
so amazing to me was this moment when we stopped talking and we were in a cafe and everybody, the conversation just died down after two minutes and everybody took their sketchbooks out. And for the first time, I thought, this is not just me alone who does this. This is so many people and I yeah, can be one of great. the group. It, it is a fantastic, fantastic uh, uh, feeling to have. And um, I remember also going out on one of those mornings before a workshop and just seeing people all over the street just sitting there with their sketchbooks on benches. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It's this uh, feeling of permission that you didn't think you needed, but it's something that's granted to you that it's okay to do this. It's okay to spend your time like this and enjoy it. You don't have to feel odd in any sense. Uh, Shari, I want to ask you as a teacher now with COVID-19, everything has moved online and all these workshops have gotten canceled and all these events aren't happening anymore. So so how do you, how do you meet their needs now? What are some things you're doing? Well, I, you know, I, I did have a whole uh, year of workshops that I was supposed to do in person. And um, when uh, COVID started, I had already been thinking about wanting to do some online classes because I had done some previously with uh, Craftsy Blueprint um, a couple of years ago or about four or five years ago. And I thought that it might be interesting to do some on my own. So um, you know, when COVID happened, um, I thought, how can I, how, you know, maybe now I have the time really to do this. So I started recording them, um, at home and I'm lucky I have space at home. So I was able to convert a part of my studio into a video recording, uh, studio and, um, just use basically because we couldn't really get out much use iPhones and things that I had in the house to be able to do this. But I was lucky because I had already done some classes. So I had the experience, plus I had already had teaching experience. So I was able to quickly sort of pivot and uh, come out with the first course in mid-April, which was pretty quick. Um, and to have you know a full, a full online uh, website, a new teaching website, and um, I've been able to put out a course a month, but it was sort of, I, you know, I work with my husband. We're, uh, we're a very good team. He's a writer uh, and, uh, and now a cameraman and now an editor, a video editor. Um, and uh, so we quickly learned, I mean, you know, we already have marketing experience because we, were, we met in advertising in the advertising field. So my husband is a copywriter and um, I'm an art director. So we were able to do, you know, the writing and the website. I was able to do the website and he was able to do the video editing and the camera work. And um, I already knew what I wanted to teach and I already knew what I wanted to say and I'm used to teaching. So it was really a matter of the technical details. How do we figure out where, where the camera goes? and um, how many cameras that I want to have, and how do we get good sound and good picture. And if we can get good sound and good picture, I know what I want to say. So I was able to, you know, start with courses. So we did, we did three in studio. And then when things started to open up, we said, okay, let's, let's go out. So we did, uh, we've done one out on location, which 
um, has its fair share of technical uh, challenges. Sound is a big one, of course, because uh, you're you're outdoors and and I'm speaking. So it's a matter of, you know, making sure that, you know, when a garbage truck comes by, I mean, we try to go to a park, but still people walk by, you're in a public place, there's airplanes going overhead, uh, you know, uh, wind, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, but we were, we, we were able to do it. So I'm very happy that I was able to so far do four and I'm recording a fifth this week. So, uh, yeah, so I've been... I feel uh, very lucky that I've been able to shift my focus and continue teaching, even though COVID has made it so difficult uh, for everybody. But one of the things that I'm very happy with is that um, in the results of my survey that I sent out to my students, people were so happy that they were able to find a lot of courses. There are many teachers doing, I mean, not just mine, but a lot of people are doing Zoom classes. A lot of people are doing courses like mine, recording things. And uh, so it's, again, we're lucky as artists, I think, that we have a hobby to keep us busy also during this time. Which, which reminds me, uh, are these courses designed for people who are already somewhat versed in watercolors? What's the profile of the kind of students that come to your courses or that you want coming to your courses? Well, I you know, I don't teach beginner I don't teach beginner watercolor or beginner drawing. So I kind of target it to the people who come to my workshops at Urban Sketchers uh, Symposia and also to my own workshops. I sort of think of that. So they already have a little watercolor experience. They already know how to draw a little bit and they want to strengthen their skills, whether it's in watercolor or composition or you know, one of my courses is light and shadow or tackling specific subjects like like how to paint different kinds of water. I was just going to mention that I really appreciate how your courses have a very specific goal. So it's very it's very easy to tell that I want to learn this because it will help me tackle exactly this problem that I have. Like you mentioned, the one about water is how to paint water surfaces is like an enduring challenge to so many people across skill levels. So yeah. to have something that specifically focuses on that and helps you to make sense of this kind of natural phenomena is really great. So so my aim is always to uh, give students skills so that they, when they go out, they can have skills that they take away from my courses that will help them when they're on location. That's what I hope for, is not so much to replicate exactly what I do, uh, but to teach them how to look and evaluate a scene and give them the tools to put it down on paper in a way that is effective. That's really the aim. So I try to put myself in like, what, how can they take those things away? Shari, I have just one uh, final question left with me. And this has been such a nice, positive conversation for me. I've, yeah. I've picked up so many things from you. Me too. Uh, this is a question that I'm hoping to be able to ask all my uh, guests in one form or another. And I'm curious to hear what you have to say. So my question is, uh, to an, a non-artist, to somebody who's not drawing for pleasure, not drawing during their leisure time, is not an urban sketcher, what is one good reason you could give for them to try urban sketching? Uh, 
to try urban sketching or to try drawing? Because like if someone's never drawn before, it's pretty hard to convince somebody to go out into the world and draw. Well, let's say, uh, let's not say out into the world. Let's even think of urban sketching as simply drawing from observation. Even if you're indoors and you're drawing your television and the stand it's on, I think that could qualify as an urban sketch. Yes. Well, part of, um, well, one of the reasons I like drawing is the, um, the meditative aspect of uh, forgetting about the rest of the world and just really f- super focusing on uh, looking at a contour of an object and trying to put that down on paper. So for me, the, the process itself is, um, uh, is one that I really enjoy uh, because I, I, it, it's like meditation for me. Uh, when, I, when I've been drawing for an hour, and then suddenly I realize, okay, I got to go do something else. I really feel like I'm coming out of, of something like meditation or yoga or something. It feels so useful right now, especially when we're so distracted by so much conflicting news and everybody's life. So many lives are in upheaval because of the way work is changed, the way uh, living situations have changed and our social lives have changed. So like a moment of meditation or being able to ponder on something that is not directly related to the uh, problems in our lives, it feels like a very welcome relief. It does. It does. And then if someone wants to actually get outside and do a little bit of drawing, um, and it doesn't have to be a big scene, it could be your coffee cup while you're sitting in a cafe, um, it makes you more present in your space, I think, of where you are. If you're, especially I find if you're outside and if you're in a place that you're not familiar with, like if you're traveling and you have a little sketchbook with you, it makes you more present in the space in understanding the people around you. That's what I appreciate most about having a sketchbook when I travel is that um, I, I, you know, I, I, I can hear more things around me. I, I observe more things um, but it's also sounds and smells. It, it's it's like it, it sort of opens all your senses to where you are rather than just passing through a place. You're in it for a time. And that creates a memory for you that perhaps will be a longer lasting memory than if you just took a photo of a place and moved on. Do you find, I mean, you've been doing this for so many years, more than me. So I'm curious to know, do you find that when you look at an old sketch or a painting of yours, that you can almost also see what you can remember exactly that day or that moment Absolutely. or the thing that you were oh, looking at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I'll go back through my old sketchbooks. I'll remember who I was with. You know, sometimes on, on uh, Facebook, people post memories of, uh, you know, of different sketching events. And when I see those sketches, I remember sitting next to that person. I remember the conversation that I had. Um, it's just, uh, uh, you know, uh, it evokes like, it's like, a, it's like opening a whole window in your brain of things that might be further back in the filing cabinet and they come forward because of your sketch. Yeah. Yeah. I just realized I have one more question. Oh, I don't know how okay. I missed it. My final question therefore is what is something that you appreciate having learned from a workshop that you attended? 
And this is where you mentioned my workshop. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, when I take let's be subtle about uh, it. Let's just yes. throw in my workshop towards the when end. I, yes, when I take workshops, because my weakness is always drawing people. Uh, so I will always choose workshops that push me to draw more people. Uh, so let's go in chronological order of the amazing people work, people drawing workshops that I've taken uh, in, in Santo Domingo with Veronica Lawler and another one with Melanie Rhyme. Um, and then in Chicago with you, where we were standing on a really, really cold street corner and drawing people, but it didn't matter. I had to go buy a jacket after that. I was so cold and drink a lot of coffee. Um, but we did so many fantastic exercises for observing people. And then another one that was really remarkable was with uh, Suhita and Marina in, uh, in the Netherlands on the beach. So those are all really amazing workshops where people have pushed me to, you know, instructors have pushed me to look at drawing people in different ways than I would normally think. All, gr all great. And you are in there with those five. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. That, that's, that's the clip I was looking for. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, so uh, we're at the end of my questions. Um, this was a really lovely conversation, Shari, and I'm really glad that we did this. Well, I just wanted to say thank you for having this time to talk together. It was really nice. It was a, a great conversation. And, um, you know, I think sometimes, uh, you know, in these times of COVID, we're so disconnected from our sketcher friends. I feel that way anyway. And uh, so it's really nice to just be able to think about these things and reach out and connect, even though it's only over the Internet. But it really, it makes me feel better about this time and gives me hope that one day we're going to be sketching in person again together. So, Hello again. I hope that was a fun listen. Shortly, we will begin the second conversation. But before that, just a moment to thank my sponsors. The Sneaky Art Podcast is 100% listener-supported. This means my sponsors are people just like you who enjoy listening to these conversations and appreciate the work that goes into putting it all together. This week, I want to read out a message that one of the sponsors left me so generously along with her support. Ellen says, Nishant, I have been completely hooked and non-stop listening since earlier this week. Well, thank you, Ellen, for driving up my numbers. <laughs> I love how you take your time with your guests, how conscientious and analytically you approach everyone and everyone's processes. Overall, in awe of the quality of content you are achieving, a big thank you from the community. Thank you so much, Ellen, for your support and for these kind words. It makes me feel so good to know that the kind of work that I put in is appreciated by listeners, so I just love getting feedback from people who enjoy the show. If you like my work, there are two easy ways to support it. If you liked this episode, just like Ellen did, you can buy me a coffee. That's it. Follow the link in the show notes to buy me one cup of coffee or two or three or four, whatever you're comfortable with. Buying me a coffee virtually, just like in real life, is an opportunity to start a conversation. 
Tell me what you like about the show. Is there an artist you've been eager to hear about or hear from, but who hasn't yet appeared on the show? Tell me about them. Maybe I can reach out to them and invite them. If you have heard several episodes and if you like this show at this point, consider becoming a sneaky art insider. Insiders commit to supporting my work on a regular basis in exchange for a host of privileges, bonus content, and behind-the-scenes access. But above and beyond what I can offer them, it is their consistent support that really helps me plan ahead as an independent podcaster, artist, and writer. It is truly the best way to show your support and to keep this show going. The monthly pledge as an insider is equal to one cup of coffee per month. That's all. And the annual pledge is equal to one big meal in a restaurant per year. That's it. For more details and for the chance to sign up, follow the link in the show notes. Support is not only monetary, of course. I appreciate each and every listener who tunes into the show. Knowing that you're there and that my work is reaching the people who appreciate it is indeed a lot of encouragement. So if you like, you can help me reach more people by doing just two simple things. One, share this show with someone that you think might enjoy it too. And number two, give the show a rating on Apple Podcasts. Find a link to that in the show notes as well. And with that out of the way, let's begin this wonderful second conversation that I was able to have with Shari Blankov. Yeah, I, can't, I was trying to remember when the last time was that we spoke. So it was, uh, it was at the, was it the start of COVID? Yeah. And, well, of. I think maybe it was July or August. Okay. Okay. So yeah, good. I mean, it's been kind of a strange year, but it seems to be getting a little bit more back to normal in, in that, you know, I think people want to be sketching together again. So uh, workshops are being planned, which is nice. And uh, I see people getting out and sketching together, which is great. So it seems a little bit more positive, which is nice. Gives gives us something to look forward to, right? Yeah, and you did that amazing four-person workshop in Madison. Uh, not in Madison, in Wisconsin. Yeah, in Madeline Island. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was uh, just a highlight, highlight of the year. I was just writing about it yesterday because I, I think we were like, all of us, we were just beaming the whole time just because... <laughs> We were so happy to be together and so happy to be teaching again. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah, I I I I was beaming from a distance just watching you guys together, just imagining what it would be like if everyone was, you know, I think uh, you were uh so I I think I'd said maybe I said this to you or I said this to Paul or Uma, but I was telling one of you that uh, it's like you need to celebrate on behalf of all the other urban sketchers because everyone wants exactly what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, this I know. I know. I felt like we were doing that. You know, I felt like we had the energy of that. I think I think you get you do get um, a creative energy from being with other people, from from sketching with other people and from teaching with other people. And it was something we missed for a year and a half. So it it was sort of like a pent up desire to to Mm -hmm. to be with other people and sketch and just share all that stuff again. So, uh, you know, we just (laughs) had so much fun. Yeah, I, that, that and that's so true because I've been feeling that now because 
with uh, the first half of covid i was in chicago and it was possible to sketch with other people sometimes but uh, it was not very you couldn't do it often enough so i was starting to feel that you know that, uh, like as if some of the energy is gone from doing this yeah and now i'm in vancouver and i know very few people i know a couple of sketchers and i'm maybe able to meet up with somebody once in 5 or 6 weeks uh so again most of the time i'm sketching alone and it's just starting to feel like a drag in some respects like i think it's just there are some natural disinclinations and if you're in a group you can sort of conquer them yeah uh, like i'm a little nervous about sketching in some public areas but if i was with another sketcher i wouldn't think twice about it yeah i i think uh i think that's true and i think there's also something true about when you're sketching with somebody else you're talking i don't know i find this for myself when i'm talking to somebody and we're just sketching the the result is better because you're not thinking about the sketch so much you're thinking about you know your chat and yeah. uh sometimes you just you know it's it, you get a better result but but uh, you know in vancouver i taught there years ago and there was a huge urban sketchers group there chapter and they met more than once a week maybe like three times a week So I don't know if they've started up again but they were very active. Yeah, so I've been able to meet them the one time which was I think just about a month ago but uh, from from what I learn they're doing more online events right now. They're not uh-huh. doing a lot of physical meetups and the physical meetups are quite rare. Okay. So online events actually are very draining to me. Like I don't feel like joining them even though it's a good opportunity to catch up and to meet new people. I just I I dislike them so much that I just don't join them at all. That's okay. Yeah. Mm. That's... So I'm hoping yeah and now I'm going to, so you're traveling soon and I'm also going to India in a couple of weeks. So I'm hoping that that will just refresh all my sketching energies and I'll come back and everything will be just changed. <laughs> I think sometimes just seeing a different view makes a big difference. Yeah. Know? and i think uh, that was also the reason why i was really happy to to uh to travel again a little bit this summer because everything just looked so great when you get out of your your routine you know it's just all these you know the lights different and the buildings are different and the people are different and it's just all exciting yeah yeah so absolutely does, i'm sure you will get that back your <laughs> the sketching mojo yeah. <laughs> i think i i think what i i you know uh, so i think what i need now is i need a spark in a new direction the things that i do comfortably i'm able to do even now and i think what i need is some kind of this is what happens when you meet urban sketchers right like you always yeah. pick up things and you don't know what you're going to pick up from someone and it sends you off in a slightly different trajectory and i think i'm due for one like i need that Can I, I give you a challenge? From Please, Can I yes. give you a challenge? Yeah. Okay, put away your pen. Uh-huh. And get a brush and just draw with a brush instead. Just like even monochrome. Like just just take a a thin brush. Uh something that's uh you know like the one you commented on that I was drawing with in the market and you said it was like a sword. That's like a like a pointy rigor and uh that it would be great to see your drawings just done with a different tool i mean don't 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 worry too much about color just uh get a get a brush i have i have this one the pentel pocket brush pen 
There you and go. I am so afraid of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the reason that you need to use it then. I think so. Okay. I'm that's going a to beautiful, take that on. That's a great pen. It is. No it it really pen. is. <laughs> but it really terrifies the the long brush really terrifies me. I used to have the short uh, harder nib brush pen from Kuretake. Yeah. And that was that was really great. I loved using it. But that was almost just like a fude pen. Like it was so easy to control it, the yeah. the line width. So it wasn't terrifying the way this one is. <laughs> do, do you use uh, pens with water soluble ink? Um, so my uh, my fountain pens are all permanent uh, waterproof inks. Okay, because I was just uh, I was just wrote about this one on my blog today. It's mm-hmm. the it's a Pentel fountain pen. And um, it's really cool. Um, I got a box of them and it's water soluble ink. So, and the water, when you put a little uh, water on it, it's very black. So it's beautiful. So if you look on my blog today, you'll see what it looks like. That's another option. Yeah, I'll do that. I I think I, I think I need to do that. Like, I think I need to make some bad drawings now because again, what's happened as a result of staying within my comfort zone is that now I don't do so many bad drawings. I don't challenge myself in that way. And I think I need I need that again. Yeah, it's good to have those challenges, I think. Yeah, yeah. So um, Shari, I wanted to speak to you because I want to talk about a few themes that have emerged over the months since I spoke to you. And uh, I almost, like, I both love the fact that we spoke so early when I was just starting the podcast, but I also uh, dislike the fact because I feel like I was a poorer conversationalist then. I didn't quite know the different things I could do. And now I've spoken to like 30 something people and I feel a lot more comfortable and I feel like I'm just better at it. I have all these questions or, uh, well, not questions, but sort of ideas and themes that I've picked up, which have been consistent across these different conversations. And now I explore them deeper with every new guest. So I just, uh, I refer to past conversations and I ask them their thoughts on a certain, certain point of, uh, point of discussion. And I want to know more about how different people come, uh, think about the same kind of things. So uh, I was re-listening to our conversation and also to, Uh, the conversation that I had with Paul and Uma. And I decided what I want to do is I want to relaunch that episode, but I want to add a little bit more new me and new you in it because I have all these, I have these ideas that I really think I want to hear your thoughts on. Okay. That's great. Well, you've, you've really, I mean, I was one, I think one of the first ones that you interviewed but you've uh, really gone out there and interviewed so many amazing people. So I think that's fantastic. And I also notice when I look at the podcast that you are going more in depth because when I look at the time length, they're longer and longer. And I think I can't, I can't listen to one on a walk. I have to, it's going to take me three walks to get through a podcast now. That's, that's what it's become. I think I've easily doubled the average conversation time since the start. And a lot of people seem to be listening it in chunks of three or four sessions. I know there are some people who listen to podcasts at twice the speed. 
I don't know if they listen to my podcast that way, but that is a thing. It's a phenomenon. A lot of people consume media at 1.5x and 2x speed, even YouTube. And I think I've done it on YouTube a little more often than I've done it with podcasts. But yeah, I think it's... Uh, it... Yeah, I don't know. I, I like normal speed because often I know the people. So it would be kind of odd to listen to them, you know, sped up like that. But that's just yeah, me. Yeah, I agree. I'm on. I'm on the same side. I think not only uh, from knowing the people, but also just uh, sort of treating it like music, like the, the the flow of it is as important as the information aspect of it. I agree. Yeah. So well, most recently, I not it's, it's not my most recent conversation, but the most recent conversation in which I formulated a bunch of ideas was this uh, conversation I had with Koshya Kuna. And uh, it... It's a uh, we we crystal uh, our conversation sort of uh, gravitated around four general ideas which have been formulated over many conversations, but uh, this is where they sort of took shape. And I like those four ideas very much uh, for different reasons. So part of them, part of what I like about them is that they help me to understand artists as well as myself as an artist. And I think they will be useful to anybody who is early, midway, or anywhere in their artistic trajectory, so to speak. The other thing I like about them is that they are very focused on the idea of the artist today as not just purely the skill of the artist, but as what uh, Kosher uh, phrased, a creative entrepreneur, which is kind of how we are every few months we are pushed into thinking ourselves as because there are so many aspects around being a creative that are now falling on the individual and are not cannot be so easily uh, handed off to other professionals how you talk about your work where you show your work how you sell your work how you package your skills and make uh, different things out of it so all of these are very entrepreneurial skills which have nothing to do with the literal job of being an artist okay well, I, 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 I did listen to your interview with Kosha, which was really great, but I haven't had it. I've only done two walks, so it's not over yet. <laughs> it's a fairly new one. So I still have at least another two dog walks to get through the whole thing. Right. The the last hour is quite interesting. So I that's what's probably still left for you to go. Probably. And I think you'll really enjoy it. So uh, the our conversation started with this theme of Kosha being in lockdown and setting herself this idea of only doing what's fun. And that's an interesting uh, constraint to put on yourself. It's also very uh, liberating to be able to do that for a, for a short time. And we were speaking about the different things that came out of following that idea, which were quite productive, which uh, turned out to be quite a productive phase in her life. And it helped her achieve quite a few goals which one wouldn't associate with the philosophy of doing only what's fun, being able to achieve a lot of goals. So that's one idea that I kind of want to explore with you. What does it mean if you are an independent artist or as we were saying, a creative entrepreneur to, to focus on only what is fun and what is that intersection of work and fun? Do we, do we try to, is is focusing on fun a way to sort of push against some of the tedious tasks or is it a way to reframe the kind of things we have to do and see them in a fresh perspective? Have you ever thought about 
how where fun and uh, work lie for you and the line between them? Well, I did think about it a lot after I listened to or while I was listening to you talk to her about fun. And I was thinking, um, I mean, a lot of the things that she talked about in her career uh, made sense to me in my career. In other words, uh, you know, I used to be a graphic designer. She was a graphic designer. Uh, I studied fine art. She studied fine art too. So there are some parallels, although I was never a photographer. Um, but it's not so much, I mean, for me, I wouldn't say fun. I would say it's where the, where the passion and the obsession are. So for me, I was never um, that passionate about graphic design. I started off wanting to be a, be a painter and yet having to make a living. So I discarded that notion of, of being a fine artist and instead went into graphic design where I could get a job and never felt like I loved that ever in my life. Um, although I ended up teaching and when I taught it, then I realized what I loved was teaching. And then when I got back to sketching, I realized that what I loved was sketching. And then I was able to put, you know, sketching and teaching together. And that's where, uh, for me, the happiness is. Not so much the fun, but the joy uh, and uh, the passion and, you know, just being, feeling satisfied creatively. I never felt creatively satisfied doing graphic design. It was okay, it was a job, it was a career. But, um, but so yeah, I never thought of, about it as fun, but uh, I love it. And this is the first time in my life that I have something that I do that is, um, uh, you know, both uh, uh, a benefit is that I, I'm able to you know, make a career out of it, but also that I truly love it and that I can do it and share it with other people. I don't know if that answers your question, but. Well, in a way it does. So thinking about teaching and sketching and thinking about the passion you have for those things. Um, now, especially in order to keep doing it and to be able to sustain yourself to do it, there is some element of work that you have to put in you do have to uh, pitch yourself as a teacher. You do have to work on a platform that will allow you to share your teaching with the most number of people. And maybe those aspects of setting that up or formalizing certain things is not exactly the same uh, passion that you have for the literal task of teaching somebody. So there is there is work involved in in letting yourself do something that you enjoy doing and to be able to do it sustainably. So how do those, uh, how do you balance some of those tasks? Like there is the aspect of teaching that is fun, but there is the aspect of teaching that is just work in order so that in order that you can have fun. Uh, you know, if it all leads to the thing that I love to do, then it, it's not work for me. I, I know it, even if I'm, you know, creating courses online and, and developing them and then setting up the website, uh, it's, I, it's all stuff that I love to do. And I never think, well, uh, you know, I'd rather be doing something, just sketching, because it's, it's sort of all for me now, kind of a continuum, you know, of, of 
sketching and then thinking, well, how can I turn this into either a course or how can I develop this into uh, a blog post that uh, I could share with people or how can I make this into something that I can teach in an in-person workshop? For me, it, it's, it is all connected. It's all about just, uh, you know, sort of communicating those ideas of, and that's what I've done right from the beginning when I started my blog, which is now 10 years old, is, okay, now I'm working on, I'm doing this sketch, what am I thinking about when I'm doing it, and how can I share that thought so that maybe it helps somebody else when they go out to sketch. So it, it is really a continuum for me. It's just all related. Um, so whether I'm writing about sketching or sketching or, uh, you know, recording a video that shows an idea, it's, it's all connected. So, you know, the, to me, I, I never think like this is some part of this is a chore, you know, even when I'm working on the computer, uh, answering comments or responding to work that people post or whatever. Um, I, I know that maybe sounds kind of goofy because I like it all, but um, I'm just, uh, it, it's honest. I mean, I, I yeah. do, I, it's never work anymore. It's right. never work anymore. So I feel very fortunate about that. That's, that's really great. I, I really like that it's this way for you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering now about how uh, over the last couple of years, in-person workshops have only just resumed and so for the longest time that is there, there's so much energy we draw from uh from actually being with people and uh being able to impart ideas to them uh how have you been able to uh like operate in the absence of that have you had to like push yourself to find that same fulfillment in online workshops or in the videos and, you know, like you mentioned, interacting through comments, it's not quite the same as being able to be with someone at a place. No, it's not. But, you know, when I first started to create my courses, um, they're, uh, you know, let's say one hour or two hour online courses. And in the beginning, I didn't have um, uh, people uh, weren't able to post comments or share their work. And I find that one way I had to develop a connection with people was to then allow people to share their work and post comments and questions because to work in a vacuum, in other words, to create a course and not see what people are doing or how they're reacting to the things that you're presenting to them uh, makes you, it, it, it sort of leaves you with an empty feeling, you know? Mm -hmm. So as soon as I, I switched that up and after the first few courses, I allowed comments and I allowed sharing then I felt like it was a two-way communication rather than, you know, just a one-way thing where I was just saying, here's this idea, but not um, seeing what the result was from students. So that really helped a lot because not everybody posts work, but a lot of people do. And um, then I get to see, uh, you know, I, I just, I get to see the result and then I'm able to continue. But um, that said, um, it's still not the same as being in person, whether you're teaching or uh, just sketching with other people, because, uh, uh, you know, that, that's the part that I love. I mean, it's the connection. And I think uh, that's why when I taught in the summer with, with uh, 
three other instructors. Um, and we just got so much creative energy from that uh, because, uh, I don't know, you know, when you see other people work uh, <laughs> in whatever setting, uh, it just it just gives you ideas. You just, you, uh, getting creative energy from other people, I think that is, I don't know, a key. It's probably like what, what everybody in the urban sketching uh, community is missing is being with other people and getting that kind of feedback about your own work and just seeing what other people do in their work and gives mm -hmm. you so much, so many ideas because when you work in your own bubble, as you know, as we all know, at some point you just feel like, I don't know what I want to do anymore. Yeah. Now there's this theme that I keep coming back to in, uh, I found it applies to my work and I've, I keep coming back to it in my conversations. And the general idea is that within constraints, sometimes we find freedoms and the things that we define as things that are chains upon us actually give us an opportunity to discover something more about us. So the common way that I apply it in my work is that I use simply a fountain pen and therefore I cannot do, there are so many things I cannot represent. I cannot represent colors. I cannot represent even values in my lines. My lines are solid, uh, 100% opaque lines. And that means there are lots of things I cannot do. But because of those constraints, I also have this freedom of being able to explore lots of other things as a result, because my choices have been certain choices have been taken away from me. And so I go a little deeper with using the ink and representing different things using that and trying to represent more and more things with just this single tool has meant that I have been almost forced into developing my own style of representing things and th that's the f that's the freedom element of having these tight constraints so uh, what i'm thinking is that teaching online uh, teaching through these courses have and we've all been pushed into it against our will it's i feel like sometimes the things that would have happened over 5 or 6 or 7 years otherwise have all been compressed into seven or eight months in the pandemic, all of us having to make these big changes. So my question is, have you found that it has given you something that you maybe didn't have before, some kind of hidden benefit of being forced to make all these changes so quickly? Like as a, as a teacher, as an instructor, have you, have you picked up something from having to very quickly pivot? Uh, yeah, I think I've picked up a lot of things. I mean, you know, it's very different. Um, when you're teaching on location, you are looking at something and I think you are trying to, uh, translate that scene, that three, three, you know, that 3d world into onto a, a flat surface. And for me, when I teach, I try to uh, sort of explain my thought process. So I'm looking at a scene and saying, this is how I would simplify it. These are the colors that I use. Um, so it's very much about being in the moment, right? Of uh, wind, light, color, shadow, changing thing. You know, everything's changing, people going by, movement. Um, and so, uh, you know, creating courses and trying to teach um how to apply those same things yet you're in a in a in a fixed studio you're indoors you're working from a photo of a scene that you might have liked where you picked up some of those elements 
um, you, you're trying to uh, teach people how to interpret, um, or I, I try to give them skills that they could bring outside later on. And yet I'm trying to teach it to them in uh, in a fixed way by you know looking at a photo and that that's really difficult because um you know i would rather be doing the other thing which is being outside with them so um that's the hard part of it but um the good part of it and i think the thing that um is probably an advantage is that um it gives me a lot more time to think about all the things that I want to teach because I have to, you know, prepare them. Uh, I, I sketch out the scene first. I think of all the things that I want to say. So I think that I'm able to cover a wider territory and possibly, you know, share more skills in a, in a longer, um, more drawn out process where I say, okay, these are, this is how I prepare the palette, or these are how I paint out the swatches. And these are the colors we're going to use. And here's some practice exercises that you can do first. So I think it's actually maybe a stronger, uh, teaching experience because I'm able to think through the whole process. Um, and yet always keep in mind that, you know, if you were on location, this is how you would do it right yeah yeah that's that's a great point i i was just thinking about uh, the usk chicago seminar the the like in 2018 when i had attended as a as a participant uh, just as a student so to say and i was attending a perspective workshop and that morning there was a deep fog <laughs> right through downtown <laughs> chicago and you couldn't see the buildings so there was no way to for the instructor to teach us perspective and it was like he had to improvise on the spot about what he's able to tell us about perspective, what we are able to see. And we ended up spending half an hour just walking around, hoping to be able to see the tops of some buildings so that we wow. can tell perspective. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's come to this uh, a second idea that uh, came to me that I wanted to speak to you about. And this is the uh, idea of gardeners versus architects. I was thinking about it just now when you were telling me about being a graphic designer out of the the need to have a have a proper profession that pays and then teaching graphic design and then finding your way back to art in these different interesting ways. So the idea of gardeners versus architects was articulated by the author of the Game of Thrones books, George R. R. Martin, and he was talking about different styles of writing fantasy fiction. But I think it applies to a creative career in a very interesting way. So let me tell you what he was generally saying. I'll paraphrase. The idea was that you can write fantasy fiction in one of two ways, either as a gardener or as an architect. The architect has a very fixed idea of the, pro of the final product. So they have blueprints, they have materials on hand, they know exactly what goes where, and they proceed with a very systematic step-by-step -step process to do exactly what they intended to do. A gardener, on the other hand, does not have a fixed idea of what the end is. The gardener still has skills, but the job of a gardener is to be optimistic, to plant seeds, to water them, and then to tend them as they grow. 
he cannot control or know the final form there is no use in knowing the final form because there's no way that he can stick to exactly something happening in exactly a certain way so he talks about being a fantasy fiction writer more as a gardener while comparing someone like jrr tolkien who wrote the lord of the rings books as an architect who was executing a specific vision so i was thinking about artistic careers in this way because uh, there's this thing that when people look at artists whom they admire anybody who any of your fans who look at your work they will see where you are and then they will chart a straight line from where they think you might have begun say early childhood and that straight line will be the trajectory you have followed in order to be exactly where you are today as if this is exactly how you planned everything but that's not how things often work and a lot of artists as i have come to realize and it's so gratifying to know have come to be who they are through a series of accidents and happenstance and circumstances and all kinds of unforeseen unplanned events happening in certain ways and themselves reacting to it so i want to i want you to tell me a little bit about this with respect to what i'm curious to know is what are some did you feel like you needed to have a deterministic vision for yourself very early when you were just maybe when you were a teenager or something like that and what were some of the early ideas you had for your career and what you're going to be and how many times did that change wow what a question um i don't know i mean i never had like a long term uh idea of what life was going to be like in terms of my artistic career i just knew it was just always something there i had to draw that's it's just part of you know but that that wasn't a career thing at all um it was just uh more like like i said before an obsession so it's it's always um something that's on the side and being an artist was you know an artist i say that in quotes because it's sort of something that it was something never that never seemed possible as an idea of something uh like a career or something i could be successful in um it was just a matter of you know how do you how do you make a living and uh you know i had a graphic design business with my husband for many years and that was where we put all our energy you know of making that successful so the art thing was kind of always on the side and i think i probably mentioned to you uh you know talking about a series of accidents and how uh i got started in urban sketching you know was just because i wanted to get back to the tactile again i was really fed up with um with working on a computer and i picked up a sketchbook and not long after i i uh i found urban sketchers online and then i met mark tarrow homes and that that was the accident that changed my life you know of finding urban sketchers of of meeting mark and sketching with him and um uh you know that you know that I I would say was like the biggest change in my in my life uh in my career of all time of you know more than finding my first job in graphic design or or anything because that that was where I realized like 
quite late in life, I say uh, that uh, th this is where I need to be and this is what I, I, I need to be doing. So uh, I don't know if I answered your question, but. Um, uh, so um, I think uh, I think a part that I, I would still like to know is, did you ever think differently? Like when you say you looked at the careers of people that you admired, whether they were artists, whether they were designers, did you think also that they surely had this figured out and then they went towards it. Did you feel compelled at any point that this is how it needs to be? And if you don't do it, then you're not doing it right. I, I did. I mean, I would always look at, at uh, you know, this was way before Urban Sketchers, but I would always look at watercolor painters and, and think, you know, I, I should never have, I, I always wanted to do that. And I should never have gone into graphic design. I should never have worried about making a living. I should have just done it. Um, but, um, but, but I never did. And I thought I will never get to it. I will never get to painting. Because in my head, it was always like, uh, oh, someday when I retire, when I'm 75, I'll, I'll be able to pick up a paintbrush again. But it, it was never something that I thought I could do. And I thought, I don't know how they find the time to, uh, you know, I would also see people who had careers outside of painting and, and painted too. And I never knew how they found time to do it. So to me, it was always something that was way, way, way off in the distance. Um, and something that I thought that I would, I would never find the time to do. Or, yeah. or, or and and maybe never be successful because you can't be successful without putting in the time. Mm -hmm. So I thought in my if I look ahead at my life, I will never be able to do this. It was kind of a sad, sort of a sad thing because I painted, you know, when I was in my teens and in my early twenties, and then um, and then I stopped and I thought uh, it will it will never be something that I'll be able to get back to. So that was that was the trajectory, which is why when I said that, you know, how much that there there's nothing now that is work for me, it's because it is all it all revolves around doing the thing that I love to do that I thought I would never get to do. <laughs> yeah, so well put. And uh, while you say this, uh, like it kind of resonates nicely with the with the next point that I the next idea that I wanted to share with you. Because uh, I'm thinking also in the time that when you were young and then when you finally decided and it started to work for you to become an artist once urban sketching came into the picture, what also sort of changed or what was also evolving was the different ways that a person could become an artist and the different ways that an artist could find success or find a sustainable practice. And uh, tied into that are the, the different ways that you can make money, the different ways that you can reach people, the different ways, therefore, that you can have an audience and a willing set of people who who want your art and how you can reach them and how they can reach you. All of this has been changing consistently. And maybe over the last 10 or 15 years, it has just exploded in like the possibilities have become endless. So uh, the idea that uh, Kosha and I came upon at one point and I discussed this with her is a bit of advice that somebody gave me and I found that I have been thinking this way all my life as probably as a child of the 90s I grew up on computer games and uh, so as a result of that the idea is think of the games that you want to play and 
thinking of life in terms of the various games that we are part of games meaning uh, our notion of competition with others our notion of winning versus losing in quotes both of those words our notion of the rules that are around the things that we are allowed to do or the things that we will do and the way that we are therefore able to do them or not and you have already taken one significant decision in this like one of my ideas was have you ever quit a game that you had entered without quite realizing the rules or realizing the the victory scenario and decided to pursue another game which is exactly true for you to change your life's trajectory is to get out of one game and then choose to participate in another so uh, firstly i just want to know have you thought about things in this way and uh, about your sense uh, what does it mean as a freelancer or as an independent artist to be playing the games you want to play today hmm another big question you've been you've been thinking too much over the <laughs> over the past year about these big questions um well i don't know i'm not a game player so i never think about the i mean i think about competition and i'm very competitive but i never think about this notion of games so um yes i did make a big change in my life and i did change the trajectory of my life but i don't know i've never really thought about it in that sense um so i don't know i don't have an answer for that so uh, let me let me uh, parse like a little part of that big question okay <laughs> uh so there are two ways that we can think about uh, this word games there is the notion of finite games that is a game that ends you have something you do and then you are done and then there is the notion of infinite games these are games that neither end nor do you want them to end you have fun playing them you have fun operating a certain way within this scenario and so it's an infinite game you want to keep playing it and this ties into this idea from james clear that i had read of having systems and not goals so the key to a happy life being that don't set goals instead have things you do that you enjoy doing and find a way to make them work for you so that you can spend most of your life doing things that you enjoy doing and therefore being happier and the idea of goals is that you set a goal that you will perhaps achieve in 5 years or 10 years say if you're on a corporate ladder and you want to reach a certain position and you set a goal of a 5 year plan in which you reach that position what ends up happening is that you delay your happiness or the reward that you're allowed to feel or enjoy until you achieve your goal and the day you achieve your goal you feel this sharp spike in happiness and you are super uh proud of yourself and then you set yourself another goal because that's what you do and then again there is a long a long time that you're not allowed to really feel like you have achieved anything because joy is postponed to the moment you achieve that next goal so this is another way of thinking of like almost modeling life as a game in a sense and i'm just curious to uh, to know how uh, to learn how you think about it okay so that makes more sense to me in my life um because i think that every time i draw 
um, whether it's, you know, for 15 minutes in a day or I paint for an hour or two, that joy is there, right? So there, there's, it's never related to a, a goal or a long-term uh, result even. Um, in fact, often it's the end product doesn't even, it doesn't even matter what the end result is. It's the process. So for me, uh, what happens is, is when you, when I spend time drawing, it's a form of kind of meditation, uh, relaxation, Zen, whatever, you know, it's the state that you're in. So I suppose it's a, it's a bit like when people meditate. Um, but if you're able to have that in your life every single day, um, then you don't need to say I'm, I'm working towards something. It's just, it's, it's kind of a, a, it's a constant that you have every day. And I think when I did make that change in my life, um, that's, you know, that's why, uh, it made me so happy to make that change in my life because it's, it's the process. It's not about the goal at all. So I guess you're, idea of the game and my idea of uh the being in the moment is kind of the same thing mm -hmm. does yeah, that make sense yeah. in how i think about it yeah. it does uh I'm, I'm curious to know how now things are changing so fast in the ways that we are we can be artists uh the way that we are allowed to be artists uh, speaking of how we sustain ourselves as well as how we find people who are interested in our work. So much is changing so quickly. So uh, uh, people describe this moment in time sort of as the emergence of the creator economy in, in that various creators, people with all kinds of different skills are able to find the people who care about the things they do and then directly uh, get in touch with them without needing to uh, pass through institutions or gatekeepers True. and seek permission. How how have you felt about this creator economy? How have how has it changed uh, previous ideas or notions for you? The way things have developed over these last few years. Uh, well, one of the big ones I think for me is um, you know as a painter is the idea of the gallery system of you know the that you used to have to create and then find a place where you could show your work. Uh, it would involve a great expense uh, of framing your work, of finding someone who would be willing to take the chance um, on you. Uh, and now it's so different because, uh, you know, you can, you can sell your work off Instagram. I mean, you can take a photo of it or scan it and put it up and someone from the other side of the world will uh, will email you and say, I want that and uh, mm -hmm. off it goes. So that's, that's one big thing. I mean, I'm not a huge promoter of my work. I don't go out and try and find galleries. It's sort of, it's evolved organically where people will just email me and say, I like that, or is that for sale? Or, you know, do you have, and so I've been able to do a lot of stuff like that where, you know, where people just find me through, online sources so that's that's one big thing um and then of course uh you know uh teaching online and being able to find people from around the world who want to learn um you know years ago it would have been uh, if you didn't live in my city i couldn't teach you because uh -huh. i wouldn't be able to 
to travel, you wouldn't be able to travel. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, through Urban Sketchers and the, the, the community that we have, um, and through the internet, that's been, uh, of course, another way to connect. But I, I, but really, I think the main thing is that um, that whole gallery system for many, many artists is now kind of irrelevant. Uh, you know, it's just, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't work very large. My work is small, so it's easy to ship. It's flat. It's not on canvas. Um, and uh, so th that's been a really good thing. It's it's very it seems very um, instantaneous almost. Um, you know, I used to have to store a lot of work, frame it, and then wonder what to do with it. And um, now it just kind of you know it sits in drawers till somebody says, uh, "Do you have anything for sale?" And uh, and that's kind of nice. Yeah, and and even though you know it is always it is always ideal to be self powered in the sense of uh the reason why you make one painting the reason why you make the next painting it shouldn't be based on external validation it is still good to make something and to post it and to hear from people how they feel about it within minutes instead of having to make a bunch of work get the approval of a gallery owner display it have someone walk in and then maybe months and years and so much money and then be able to hear what people actually think of your work yeah, it's so different. That is another thing that I, you know, that has really shifted because again, when I used to think about the like the trajectory of my career, I, I, I used to think, well, I'll never be able to have a show because I'll never be able to accumulate enough work, have enough time to accumulate all the work and then display it. But it again, it doesn't it doesn't really matter now. Mm-hmm not you know i mean uh, because i do so many things i don't just paint right i because I, I teach and so i have to find time to to do everything to to uh, then i can just do a, a couple of paintings and you know sell them rather than worry about uh doing a big show right and being able to being able to blog being able to communicate online also means that we're able to repurpose so much older work in all kinds of different ways. It's not just one painting that has to be seen in public in one place in order for it to give you something back, in order for it to have value in your life. There is so much that we're able to do simply from uh, repurposing our work in different ways. Like you mentioned that you go out for a, you go out to draw something and the first big appeal of that is that you're going to spend your time in such a beautiful, wonderful way in a Zen-like meditative state for the next couple of hours. And there's so much joy in that. But then you are also thinking about the blog post that that might become. You also know that it, it will become an Instagram post and that will have its own returns. Of course, that thing can also become a print and have returns down the years as well as sell as an original and how it might be manifest into something that you use to teach a nice course based on what you're painting. That's a perfect summary. <laughs> so uh, this there's this idea around that. Uh, well, I think it was it was developing on the internet for a few years, but over the last couple of years, at least how I feel about the creator economy, it has made me start to think of the business of being an artist not as a zero-sum game, but as a positive-sum game. 
Um, so a zero-sum game being that if someone wins, then I lose. And a positive-sum game being that there is enough for everybody. In fact, that if someone wins, then I have better chances of winning as well. So we add to each other's success and we don't take away from anyone's success by succeeding or nobody. No, I don't need to be jealous of someone else's success in a sense. Is this something that you have also, uh, do you also believe this? Do you have, have you come to find reasons to believe it even more? Uh, yeah, I think because, um, you know, that this community that we belong to the, the bigger urban sketchers community is very unique in that way. Uh, in that, um, you know, I think somehow it's it the generosity and the sharing uh, that I discovered there when I first 10 years ago, you know, went to the first symposium is something that's very unique in artistic communities of not having that sense of competition, of having that sense of um, we all strengthen each other. Um, and learn from each other um, has just made us all, um, I don't know, uh, more generous too. I mean, you know, not just learning artistic, artistically, but sort of learning as people, learning how to be generous um, and to give uh, is something that I, you know, is just, very unique. Mm -hmm. So I think certainly within that community, I don't know how it relates necessarily to, um, you know, to other groups that I'm in, but certainly within urban sketchers. Right. Right. Um, I want to come to now an, uh, the fourth idea that uh, I sort of discussed with Kosha and we were talking about here strictly as uh, creative entrepreneurs. And we were thinking about what it means to, to start to build an identity on the internet, to different, uh, the, the courage to speak about your work in a certain way, to even just the courage of selling your work. Like there is a certain amount of uh, imposter syndrome that you have to overcome at certain stages. And like you mentioned, thinking for the longest time that it's too late to become an accomplished artist. And I was convinced that it's even on a much smaller scale. I When, when I left my PhD program in order to be a writer and a cartoonist, my idea was that I can definitely not really, really learn to draw. It's too late for me to learn to draw. I'm in my late 20s. Who learns to draw in their late 20s? Like, it's just not going to happen. But... Uh, so, so this is the imposter syndrome, but uh, my the idea that I discussed with her is something that um, someone said to me, and we were talking about how I should, how I should model myself, how I should pitch myself going forward, and how I should think about my work so that I can pitch myself effectively and think of different things that my work can become. And the advice he gave me was, don't try to be the best, be the only. And this is something that I have allowed to percolate in my mind and bounce around in different ways. So before I go into it, I just want to get your first thoughts on what this quote sounds like to you. How, how, how do you perceive it? Uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me because, um, uh, and again, it took a long time because I, I, think, I think we all have a hard time seeing our own work, right? 
Um, but a few teachers that I've taken courses with, uh, whether it's watercolor or drawing, have said something that makes a lot of sense, which is the more you do, the more your own voice will come through. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what you just said about um, not being the best, but being the only, well, if your own voice or your own style comes through, then that becomes the only because it's you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think when I kind of realized that in my own work, you know, don't try to emulate, but just um, just keep doing it. And eventually something will come out of that. Um, then I started feeling better, I guess, about my work. So, um, so yeah, I, I agree. I agree, which is another reason going, just going back to, to teaching, wh- which is why when I teach I on location, I try to say, I want to teach you how to see mm-hmm. so that you see for yourself, not how to uh, paint the same thing that I paint, not to, not to replicate the sketch that I do, but to be able to, you know, to look, to think, um, and then to work on how, you know, whatever your vision is or whatever your style is, or, you know, and I, when I, you know, when I say style, I know it sounds a bit strange because it's, it's not like a style, like an established style that I want people to develop. It's just their own way of working. I mean, everybody has their own handwriting. So when you draw, you have your own, your own line. Mm -hmm. um or your own sense of color or you know or even your own choice of subjects or the things that you look at um so i i agree with that i think that was really good advice Um, yeah 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 and i'm thinking about just this notion of trying to be the best and how we often start with that when, uh, you know, you, we start with this idea of climbing the mountain and being on top as if there is a top to be on and as if that that is the only worthy goal to pursue. And it takes a lot, it takes a bit of time to unlearn it. Yeah. And you know how I think of it? It's, it's I don't think of it as so much like the best because really who determines who is the best anyway? I mean, that's mm-hmm. completely subjective. But um, to me, it relates more in drawing to what is right. So I used to spend a lot of time thinking, did I get it right? Did mm-hmm. I get it right? Did I get the building right? Did I get the perspective right? Did I, did I get the drawing of the person right so that it looks like them? But lately, I've been thinking more like, who cares if it's right? Um, it's more important to um, express something. So the expression of what you do whether um you know uh i I don't really care if if the building looks right but if i'm expressing what i see or what i feel about the day or the scene then that's more important than right Mm -hmm. so i think right and the best are sort of the same yeah like 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 the same kind of mirage that yeah like what is right what is best indeed that's that's exactly the question and we i think we it it takes it takes a bit of it takes a bit of effort to understand that that is such a pointless goal to have i feel like today it's a little easier to 
to see that difference between these like to see it for the mirage it is because there are so many avenues to success again it sort of ties into how if there was a very established way to success like you mentioned you need the approval of gallery owners you need to do this much work in order to uh, be even qualify to get into a gallery and then to display there it does sort of drill into you this idea that there is a right way to do things and that there is a right sort of thing to do and therefore that is the way to to be successful and that is the only way to be successful well you know you, you have to think about success i mean if you if you need to earn a living then your success depends on the approval of others whether they buy your paintings buy your courses or whatever on the other hand, if your success is determined only by how happy you are, that's very different. I mean, I'm at a point in my life where, uh, uh, you know, I don't I don't have to uh, work as much because, you know, my kids are out of the house. And um, so I can uh, I can be happy and successful, but not have to worry about a job, for example, or or you know, working full time, I can get by by uh, by doing a bit of teaching and selling some paintings. On the other hand, if you have to um, have a full time job and, uh, you know, it, it might be a bit harder. So that's the idea of, you know, you know, where you determine success. Yeah. Yeah. And I also liked what you said about, uh, well, you were mentioning style, but not style as in having uh, you know, a, a genre almost. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about what is the difference between how we perceive originality. And th this is another one of those, those words that we throw upon us that we need to be original. And how that contrasts with a word that I like much more that we need to be authentic. Uh, mm -hmm. how, how do you see the difference between these two words, original and authentic? Um... I don't know. I mean, authentic. Well, I don't know. They're they're kind of the same for me. I mean, I I think authentic is more. Um, when you see more of somebody's personality um, coming through, and I find I'm more and more attracted to looking at things where I see that kind of expression in someone's work. Um, original it's it's hard to be original i mean especially now with the the volume of images that we look at scrolling through instagram uh scrolling through facebook and uh pinterest or whatever i mean it's really mm -hmm. hard i think you know sometimes you stop i mean i, I don't know how you how you scroll through work but i go pretty fast and <laughs> yes. uh uh when you know what makes you stop i think about that a lot what makes what makes me stop and i guess it, it is whether it's something original and i think when it's something authentic it's like even a step further than original you know it's 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 something that i've never seen before and then there's a piece of the person that's in that too mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's interesting that you say it's even a step further uh, ahead of original because i think of authentic as uh a different vector almost like original to me and this is of course how we think of the words themselves so this is not a disagreement it's just how words define themselves to different minds uh, when i think of the word original i think of just 
standing on the shoulders of giants. So uh, borrowing from all the different things that you see when you scroll Instagram and all these images come at you, whether you're on Pinterest or Instagram or the internet and whether it's uh, a golden age painter or if it's somebody uh, who's doing some kind of graphic design, digital art today, original is just that one more step that you perhaps take after borrowing and assimilating a whole bunch of ideas from people consciously as well as subconsciously. So it's just that one more step maybe that you are able to take is the originality. But authenticity has nothing to do with that exercise, in my opinion. Authenticity feels just like your ability to say something that is true for you. So coming back to the idea of being the only and doubling down on being who you are and what you... So speaking of urban sketching, for example, the idea that two people can sit on a bench, look in the same direction and paint completely different pieces is a matter of authenticity in a sense, not originality. Mm. So what do they see? What moves them? What are the tools they choose to use in order to depict that particular part of the same reality that they're seeing next to someone is what makes that work authentic. And in that exercise, you often see a lot of artists feel compelled to draw or paint certain things with, you know, that notion of what you mentioned of, is this the right thing? If I sit here, is this what I'm supposed to paint? Surely this is what I'm supposed to look at. Surely this is what I'm supposed to draw. And it has to look a certain way. But this is the, even just that decision of this is my subject matter. And obviously this is my subject matter. Is a subordination of your own authenticity in order to fulfill this external goal of what you think deserves to be painted. And mm. an authentic person might push against that and be like, you know, this is what captures my interest and that's what matters. Yes, I agree. Was there a question in there? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, not in this part. Uh, let's I come to... I let's understand, come to... yeah, your, your, <laughs> your idea of authentic is a little yeah. different than mine, but... Yeah, 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 it's just a definition of the word in the end. So... Uh, I was thinking, so all of all of these different things coming together can do that. So tying all of these things together, I guess I'm just curious about uh, what are the, some of the things that you plan to do now in this coming year? Now things are changing a little bit. COVID restrictions are changing a little bit. Uh, a lot of old world possibilities are back on the table. So what are some things that you're excited about doing in this coming year as an artist, as an educator? Um. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to kind of combining the past year with the year before. So I still want to travel because that's so exciting. And, um, you know, that's something I've missed so much in the past 18 months. Um, but uh, I still want to continue teaching online because, um, you know, one of the things that I've found from teaching online is that there are so many people that can't travel. Uh, that uh, learn better when they're on their own, that don't have don't have necessarily the budget to come to urban sketching events or symposia. Um, so that's been nice because I've been able to kind of reach those people. Um, and there are a lot of people that just learn better at a slower pace. Um, so I, I don't want to give that up. I want to continue those courses, but... I still do 
want to travel and uh, <laughs> and teach and uh, connect with you know with my urban sketcher friends because really you know that that kind of energy that you get like you know the energy that I got from teaching with people in the summer um, it does sustain you for for many many months if not years. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I still think about the first Urban Sketcher Symposium that I went to in 2012, and I still think a lot about, you know, the people that I met and the things that, that I learned. So that's just such a rich experience of being with other people. Um, that's, that, that, that's the component that was missing, you know, the people connection this mm -hmm. year. Uh, you know, draw, seeing people, but uh, drawing with them and talking in person and just like you said, sitting on a bench and looking at the same things and just seeing what other people see. So that's, uh, that. you know, those are the two things that I want to continue this year. In other words, I don't want to travel so much that I don't have time to create new online courses. I want to find a balance. That's my that's my goal is finding a good balance between the two. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that, but I, I do love seeing new places. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping for that soon. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I love what you said about uh, online courses, actually making it possible for so many people in different circumstances to be able to learn from you as opposed to in-person workshops, accessibility, geographical limitations, all of these things are such, and different learning styles, people wanting to be able to rewind and to take their time with an idea is so, so, impo so important. And again, it's this unseen gift of the pandemic, like this, these awful times have sort of given us certain things and have helped us to to focus on certain things that we wouldn't have otherwise i feel like so many people wouldn't have uh wouldn't have had to pivot and maybe wouldn't have discovered this this whole other dimension if things had gone on the way bef as before yeah what are you looking forward to in the coming year you've pivoted too yeah, well, I tell people that this podcast is a child of the pandemic. It wouldn't have existed if we didn't. It probably wouldn't. Like I, I was thinking about it, but I feel like it was only when I was, when so much of the other joys were just taken, snatched away from me, being able to talk to urban sketchers and hang out with them. Once that was taken away from me completely, that's when I was finally pushed into this thing that it needs to, I need to just do it. I need to have a podcast now so that I can keep uh, calling Shari and Paul and uh, pick their brain and get ideas from them and keep learning. I think I'm really excited going forward to to see again how, like you mentioned, like you're not going to stop the online courses, but now you want to integrate them in interesting ways because now travel is possible in all these interesting ways and in-person workshops. So there is a new iteration of these of online courses as well that's going to come from you because you'll be on the road a lot and that opens these possibilities. Similarly, I'm excited because now I can go to other places and I have this portable uh, audio recorder with me and I want to see what kind of episodes I can craft because I've had a lot of experience sitting at this desk, talking into this mic with somebody, uh, virtually speaking with somebody. 
And I haven't had the similar experience to record something when I'm out on location or when I'm talking to somebody across a table. And I'm eager to see if uh, now with uh, 30-something episodes behind me and being so confident with a lot of the nitty-gritties of putting it together, I'm eager to now try to play different games and to see different things that can come from this, different products, different ideas that I can offer people in various ways. YouTube is something that I'm sort of considering, but the the, the enormous task of video editing is very daunting to me. So I don't know. Uh, as a pure artist, I am curious again to see how I will travel and how I will talk about what I see when and draw when I travel. Because now there are different avenues with which I express myself. Another child of the pandemic for me was this weekly newsletter in which I'm sharing my journey. And it's not necessarily art or how I drew or the technicalities of what I made, but all the ideas surrounding it. I try to parse why I drew what I drew. And that takes me down very strange uh, paths because now I'm thinking about who I am and where I am and what does it mean to be who I am, where I am. And I'm, I'm com put, uh, giving myself this weekly schedule in which I need to write something. It needs to be finished and I need to hit that publish button. It means that I'm formalizing the process of thinking and articulating those thoughts. And I've enjoyed it so much. And now there are more possibilities to do it. So I'm sort of, I'm excited for a lot of more things than I was before. I think that's great. I mean, I think you're going to do some something amazing. I don't know what it's going to be, but I just see you on the road with your mic and... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be, but I think it's going to be great. Yeah, 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 exactly right. Like uh, we are both gardeners in that respect. Here are these new tools that I'm going to play with and something is going to come and I just have to have the faith that it's going to be something fun and interesting. I love that idea of the gardener. I, I don't think I was ever an, an architect, but definitely a gardener where things are just growing organically and I'm chopping some down and letting some grow. I'm going to keep that in mind. It's a really <laughs> nice image. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like, I feel like artists have to be this. Artists cannot be really architects. It's very, maybe for certain small projects, but not in the larger scheme of things. There is, there is this other quote that I have kept very close to me for a long time. And I am this kind of person. I have quotes from great people in my head and I feel like this is them telling me things. And so I remember it and I tell myself those things. And this quote is, and it sounds a little uh, grandiose, but it isn't if you really think about it. The first part of this quote is, gods must not engage in theology. And this is a very interesting thing. The second part of the quote is, and he's speaking about writers, the writer must not betray with human reasonings the faith that art requires of us. Okay, that's going to take me like re-listening to and a lot of thinking. <laughs> Let, I'll, I'll share that with you. But I think the, that first sentence already encapsulates what it's trying to say to you, that gods must not engage in theology. And that the, the certain element of just being in things rather than 
being yeah. or, or trying to parse too much yeah. maybe it's telling me not to overthink which is yeah. something that i need yeah i think that's going going back to you know sitting and drawing with somebody else and not thinking about your sketch and so it's uh-huh. the same it's the same kind of idea right yeah always a better yeah. result when you don't think about it too much mhm mhm i agree well uh thank you so much shari for joining me uh this bit that we have spoken right now i'm going to tack it to the start or maybe i'll tack it to the end of our older episode and uh share it and yeah i really look forward to so that's great so then it means i'll have my own 3 hour episode yes exactly right <laughs> like some so like some of your new guests <laughs> absolutely so this is literally what i was thinking the other day when i was re-listening that it's such a crime that i have only an hour and a half with shari and i have three hours with other people and that's great but it's such a crime that i only spoke to you and paul and uma and even suhita for such a short period of time because i was just finding my way along having these conversations and pacing is not something i was so good at then but we've spoken now for nearly as long as we did then and i feel like we're just at the start of a good conversation we haven't even like i can't imagine we ended like 10 minutes after this much the last well you, you know what you'll have to do now you'll have to come to montreal and we'll sketch together and then you'll bring bring your microphone and your recording equipment and mm-hmm. yes and... exactly right that's actually a part of my my grand plans is that i i visit all the sketchers i have spoken to and we do exactly this we sketch together and we talk and i that becomes something so special to share with people i really look forward to doing it hopefully when there is less snow on the ground because the one thing i really enjoy about being in this part of the world is that finally i'm going to have a winter without snow i'm so happy well not in montreal so you'll have to come here in the summer but uh, it's been so nice to talk to you again and uh listen to all your your four ideas your four questions <laughs> Thank you for inviting me back.